Hey, folks, welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is New York City comedian Madeline Smith. We met a while ago, and I was able to get her on the podcast right after she released her debut album, Bell at the Ball. Get that. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. She is very funny. We talked a lot about her starting comedy, polyamory, how I'm not an asshole. So uh, eat shit, everybody. She says I'm not an asshole. That means it's true. So deal with it. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all the good feedback. Please tell a friend. Tell two friends. Tell three friends if you got them. Lord knows I don't. But I'm having fun. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Thank you for doing this. Of course. I wanted you on this for a long time. And I'm like, well, no, I think the requirement has to be you have to have an album. So <laughs> you finally got else, that. Everyone else you've interviewed has had multiple albums. At least two. So I'm, I'm really bending the, bending the rules for you. But it's nice to see you. I, I haven't seen you. I mean, I mean, I saw you yesterday because we tried to do this earlier. But before that, I, I think it's been months. I know. I haven't seen you in so long. It's really nice to see you, too. We like I haven't seen like any of my comedian friends in a really long time. How's that going for you? Just the isolation? Uh, It's very well. It was really, really bad in April because like, as you know, like in New York City in April, like you truly couldn't do anything. So that was hard. But now I feel like I mean, now it's been better. I've been upstate a lot with my family. And there's like I feel like in Rochester, there's like a lot more mobility to move around and you can like drive and have a car and go to parks and not be surrounded by people. Whereas in New York City, there's just so many people that it always feels a little bit like dangerous to go outside because there's just too many people. You can barely social distance at all. So like, like usually people are, they just say New York's dangerous anyway. But yeah. for you, for you, there had to be a pandemic for you to get to that level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I actually already had COVID back in March. So I'm like not very, my husband and I both already had it. So I'm not super worried about getting it again. I'm just worried about, I don't know the ins and outs of it really yet. And I'm worried that I might get germs and like bring them to my parents or somebody. So I'm, I'm just nervous about that more. So do you feel like you have like this uh, like cloak of invincibility? Like I'm (laughs) I've already had your disease. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I did feel that way for like a couple weeks. And then the doctor that I was talking to when I went back to the hospital because they were like checking my lungs and stuff. The doctor was like, well, we don't really know if you're immune to it or not. Like we have no idea. So I was like, oh, shit. Like, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's like check the attitude, Missy. Yeah, exactly. I was like, now I can just do whatever I want. And he was like, no, don't do whatever you want. Like, you fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I saw you in the first place. Yeah, exactly. He was like, your lungs are very messed up. Like, please just stay inside. Like, So what was that like? Having it, it was very yeah, unpleasant. Yeah. It was very unpleasant. Um, it, I think, honestly, the thing that sucked the most was like, I just went from being so social and seeing so many people and like being like a wild polyamorous slut to like having to just be like this like very quiet at home person because I like couldn't like do anything crazy. I couldn't do comedy. I couldn't like leave my apartment at all. And then I got my husband sick and I felt really bad about that. So (laughs) it was just, it was not good. It was not good. So so like, that's probably the closest you're ever going to get to like the nunnery. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Cause I was like, wow, I, I was so slutting it up before and now I'm just, (laughs) 
<laughs> never having sex. Never having I, sex. <laughs> I don't like I, I'm still out on the idea. Like I, I'm agnostic, like because like like people are like, oh, yeah, you you know, pick one. You, you believe in God or not. I'm often wrong. So like like if I say, oh, uh, you know, I'm an atheist completely like, well, there's a good chance that I'm going to be completely wrong and then have to pay for it. So yeah. I'm open minded. But like I hear something like that. I'm like, maybe there is a God. It's like, you know, and he's religious. Like like he's he's a real Bible thumper. Uh, yeah. He's like, keep it in your pants, Madeline. I'm going to yeah. give you a disease. So it'll <laughs> reinforce the fact. Exactly. He didn't like all the polyamory, all the bisexuality. He was like, I don't believe this is good. This is bad for your health. So you need to stay inside. I feel the same though as you. I, um, I'm not religious at all, but I don't ever want to like, I don't want to go so far as to say I'm an atheist because I feel like atheists are like, I'm sure that there's nothing. And I'm like, that's a bit of a strong stance to take. Yeah, Cause something. like, how can you be sure? Like, yeah, like we don't that's, know. That's like the one thing where you have no idea until maybe, I mean, maybe not, but until you die. I don't want to know the answer yet. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. I agree. I met you. Uh, you know what? You know what's kind of weird. We're recording on August twelfth, four four years ago. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, three years ago, we did our first show together. So oh, it was really? Like, it was August twelfth. Yep, uh, two thousand seventeen. So wait, but I knew you before that, though, right? Yeah. So here's here's how I met you. I I assume everybody in Rochester knew about me, and that's not even close to true. <laughs> but but. I knew of you. You and Kelsey Claire were like two of the bigger names. Kelsey Claire uh, <laughs> we were, were two famous. of the bigger names of Rochester, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, at that at that point, if you were on a, a comedy poster, you were famous in my eyes. Yeah. So uh, I was really just starting to to book a lot of the comedy shows at Maddie B's. So rather than you know book the same eight or nine people from Binghamton, I'm like, well, let me let me see if I can get some other people down here. So you guys did a show with i think kenneth mclaren was doing the show I, I i don't know if he was hosting it but um uh deidre malora was on there as well and so i drove up to ithaca it was like a sunday show and i, I paid 10 bucks to get in there and my main reason was i i'd seen deidre and i think i'd seen kenneth before but i wanted to uh, see you and kelsey claire to make sure you're good enough of course and then uh <laughs> But I wanted to ask you guys to do a show. And I think I saw the show. And as we were walking to our cars, I asked you guys to do it. And it turned out that you were coming down to Endwell to do a show on the 11th of August. I probably know your schedule better than you do. But, <laughs> but I feel like like this is this is a you, we can record this and submit it to like a stalker. You yeah. Know, uh, hot, you hotline. Know. Yeah. You, but like, like, you kept track of everything we were doing. Yeah. Like everything but, but we yeah, were going. But, but yeah, uh, you had a show in Endwell on August uh, 11th. And then uh, you stayed over and did the show on the 12th. So yeah, it's just weird that, it, weird that we're recording this on the three year anniversary of it. That is funny. And I do remember staying over at your apartment. It was very nice. And yes. you were dating a girl at the time who was very into like holistic medicine or something. And she was yeah. like, she's so nice. I remember she was like telling me all about like herbs that I needed to put in my body. It was very nice. She tucked me into bed. So that, uh, <laughs> uh, it did not end well. That relationship, oh no, but like, I'm sorry. But, no, it's fine. But dating somebody who was like very into organic stuff and, and all the new age stuff is something I don't think I'll ever do again. Not by choice. It was interesting. Uh, we had some good times. We had some bad times, but like, like that was, I never thought about, you know, different vitamins and, and <laughs> supplements. And, uh, I remember her, <laughs> her, like I've got DVD shelves. She had supplement shelves. Yeah. And I was like, that's, that's where we differ completely. Like, yeah, I, 
I can go with Taco Bell and I'll be happy. Like if I get diabetes and lose a leg, fine. You know, I had a nacho bel grande and it was great. Uh, but yeah, she she would spend just as much on supplements as she would on groceries. Oh my and I was God, like, that's wow. that was tough to watch. Yeah, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Also, funny that you were dating a girl who's like, was she straight? Is she bi? Yeah, polyamorous as well. Oh, uh, so okay, because I was going to say. That didn't work for me. <laughs> well, listen, she sounds like a total lesbian, the way that you're describing her. You're like, she just has a shit ton of supplements. She like. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't, she- wouldn't surprise me. And and my track record, I, I have been known to, I don't know if I've turned women, but. Oh, yeah. I've helped. I've helped push them in the right direction. Uh, hey, you know, it's a confusing thing. I feel like I spent so long, like, like when I was younger being like, oh, I'm, I'm not really interested in women. I'm not really that interested. And then finally I was just like, no, I want to like have sex with all the women. So, you know, maybe they were just finding themselves and you just happened to be a stop along the way. And yes. you're very nice. So you're a good step over into dating women. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a friend of mine uh, in college, uh, we, I just sent her a message today, but uh, her name's Jen Keelty. She'll never, I don't know why I mentioned that because she'll never listen to this, yeah. but she would come up to my apartment or my apartment, my dorm on Sundays. And I would make that, I would make her and her friends, but her mainly mac and cheese. Yeah. And she'd say, oh, we're going to have girls night. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I like <laughs> the title. You're but like, but what about it. me? Yeah. But all we did was we'd talk about, uh, uh, she liked this guy named Mark and I was dating this woman named Sarah and yeah. we, or, or she'd broken up with me for a woman named Rachel or whatever. So like, <laughs> uh, but we would talk about that, but we would have girls night and I'm like, oh all my right, God. fair enough. But I think it's, I think it's cause I'm a listener and, uh, I have been told that I'm asexual. So oh, there was, you go. And I'm not, but like I give off that vibe. So like there, I was not a threat. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I kind of honestly, like I really do like to hang out with men like you, like non-threatening men who you can just talk to because like, especially in comedy, like there's so many men who you can't really talk to because they're so fucking obsessed with just like being on all the time or like doing bits all the time or they'll just talk over you. And you're just like, wow, are there like any men in comedy at all who I can just have a normal conversation with? Or do we always have to have like a persona, you know? Yeah. You know what I don't like is um, I don't like people and they're comedians like they're mainly comedians who do this yeah yeah who will have to like have to have a punchline like they'll have to tag something you said it's like all right well this isn't a competition like this is not an open mic like we can just bullshit a little bit yeah exactly i just i have found like for some reason like hanging out with straight male comics a lot of the time can be like very exhausting because they're just so like on all the time like they're like okay we're writing we're we're like we're making up bits we're doing this and you're like no i mean this is just friendship time this is just hangout time we don't always have to be like in comedian mode we can just be normal you know, and I'm I'm sure I'm guilty of that sometimes, but like uh, I think we all are. But yeah, I I would hope that I'm a little more aware of it because I was a sports writer for a long time, and you know, so I'd go and cover high school and college and pro games. But at a certain point, you're you're sick of sports, so I would do that, and then uh, I would you know come home and I I wouldn't want to watch a baseball game. I just I just spent two hours uh, at a high school field and then two hours writing about it and, you know, doing everything else. Like, that's the last thing I want to do. My buddies, when I was in college, we would talk sports or whatever. And then uh, we'd sit down to lunch and they'd talk sports again. I'm like, I don't, I'm done. Like, I want to check out. Like, I, I, I've overdosed in this. So I would go and, and hang out with my, my girlfriend and her fan and her, her friends at their table because they would talk about anything but sports. 
Yeah. So I'm like, I, I need that, like that pause. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm going to refresh and then go back. Yeah. So if, if it, makes- yeah, I just, I, I find that comedians who feel like they need to be on all the time. I mean, half the time I don't need to be on, on stage. Like, like, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> this guy's an awful person anyway. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I, no, I, I can't do that. Yeah, same here. Same here. I agree. And I feel like what you're saying about sports and stuff, I feel similar to comedy. Like when I first started doing comedy, like the first year, I would still watch people's specials and stuff like that. But then as time went on, I like grew so tired of watching specials because I was like, but if I do comedy every night and I see so many comedians and so many jokes, it's like it is kind of weird to then go home from a show or a mic and then continue to watch comedy. It's like you sometimes just want to have a little break from it. You know what I used to do Uh, after I got done with the game? or uh, when I first started comedy too, I would yeah. come home and watch Law and & Order SVU. And <laughs> that like, is a good break. Which is, I think, one of the best shows ever. And yeah. uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a bad episode. For me, it's an addictive show. Like like uh, if I see, if they have a marathon and the credits roll, and then I see the intro, I lost another hour. Because yeah. like, in, in my mind, I'm like, well, Stabler and Benson can't solve that unless they have my help. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I don't want to... I don't want to leave them hanging. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like, uh, but I think that's a perfect show. But what it would do is completely turn my brain off from like my work. And okay, well, you know, I because there's very, very low chance that I'm going to go into solving sex crimes. So I'm like, (laughs) okay, you know, let's let's let's, it it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to watch. I completely agree. It's nice to watch something that like is completely removed from what you normally do, because, uh, yeah, if you if you write about sports or if you do comedy or anything like that and then it becomes like. Like, it's still fun, but it is more of a job. Then it's like you you feel like I feel like then when I would start to watch comedy, I would worry that I was being influenced by it too much and that I wasn't like being original, you know, like I was like, oh, am I going to steal a punchline? Am I going to steal somebody's cadence? I just want to be myself and develop my own voice. So I think I had to stop listening to albums and watching comedy for like a little while. Well, I know when I started... I would hit the M's a lot like John Mulaney yeah. and like, yeah. like his murder or whatever. He'd just bite that M and I'm like, I start. I noticed that I did that too. And then I would hang on to some, like a, a, a phrase a little bit longer. Like my cadence would slow down like Mike Birbiglia. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that's probably directly. I mean, those are two of my biggest influences to get me on the stage. Yeah. So I'm like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't watch those guys as much as I did. Yeah. You know, just, just so I can kind of make comedy my own. I felt exactly the same when I first started. I felt like when I was like 23, I wrote my own jokes and everything, of course, but I felt like I was very much like a knockoff of Amy Schumer or someone like that. And like, and then people would say it to me all the time. They'd be like, oh, you're so funny. You remind me of Amy Schumer. And I got so tired of people saying that to me. I was like, I have to just like not I have to I have to be more original and not just be like another like drunk white woman. You know, it's not like a <laughs> I don't want to have that persona. <laughs> D- did you get OK? So do you think they gave you the Amy Schumler comp comparison? I was going to say yeah. compliment, but uh, yeah. it might have been a compliment. But uh, <laughs> d- do you think they gave you that that name because that's the only woman they knew? Yeah. I mean, okay. I think I, I would say, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I would say yes. But also, like, I do think I was really similar to her when I first started because I think I had the same way of talking because I think a lot of like white women in their 20s just talk like that. But I also think I watched her a lot when I was like in my early 20s, like 21, 22. So I think I probably copied her. But also, yeah, I honestly felt like a lot of times people would just be like, you're just like Amy Schumer. And I was like, but that's 
just because you don't know any other female comedian. So that's just what you're saying. But if they said, hey, you remind me a lot of Maria Bamford, would you have taken that as more? And I'm not dragging Amy Schumer at all. But like, would you have taken that as more of a compliment? Because they were more of like a student of comedy? Yeah, definitely. Because Maria Bamford is someone who's who I think of as being really famous, but I realize that she's really only like famous to people who love comedy. Whereas Amy Schumer is everyone. Yeah, I don't know if Maria Bamford's ever gonna be like I think comedians know she's great. Yeah. And like almost like a I was gonna say Norm MacDonald, but he's he's been on SNL and everything. Yeah. But like like she's like a hidden gem where like she's yeah. got Lady Dynamite and you know, very good specials, but it's like you almost have to look for her. Whereas yeah. Amy Schumer was just you couldn't go anywhere without being told, Hey, here's an Amy Schumer movie or yeah. she had everything cornered. And Amy Schumer also I think is just like she became such a um like a caricature of a person like she kind of like I feel like Maria Bamford is just a very unique and funny comedian whereas Amy Schumer kind of was just like okay well I'm gonna lean really hard into this being like a drunk slutty blonde woman which is like fine if that's really who she is but then she just leans so hard into it that I think that she lost like any sense of being unique and just became like the poster girl for like bachelorette parties or women like that you know and I was like I wouldn't really want to be like that however the more universal you are the easier it is to make money and become famous so I get it well like my favorite band of all time is Green Day and yeah. th- they get a lot of shit because uh, not maybe not so much anymore now their new stuff isn't great but they got a lot of shit like in the 90s because uh, you were born in what 2000 <laughs> I was born in 1990. <laughs> okay. So like so when you were when you were 4 years old, yeah. they, they came out with Dookie and like the punk yeah. scene was like, well, you know, fuck you, you're you're a sellout. Yeah. But they've influenced not granted they got a lot of money, but they've influenced so many other bands that like if not for them, you know, the the light wouldn't have been shining on a band like No Effects or Bad Religion like like these obviously good bands but not as well known. So it opened up that whole scene and like so without Amy Schumer, uh, you know, you could say the same for like Dane Cook or whatever back in the two, early 2000s, but like without these guys who are kind of like I guess polarizing is the right word, uh but like they're so in your face like I wouldn't know Rachel Feinstein or Nikki Glaser mm-hmm. probably without Amy Schumer because she would Mark Norman. Um, she produced his show, his first special, I think. So like they've been able to do a lot of things for a lot of other comedians that we, we love. And like, you know, and Nikki Glaser might have more staying power than Amy Schumer. I don't know. But like, yeah. you know, if not for Amy Schumer to lay the foundation, you don't you might not have Nikki Glaser. Yeah. Oh, and and I agree. And I think one thing about Amy Schumer is that like, even though I kind of stopped being a fan of her because I felt like her her comedy got a lot worse the more famous she got. I also think that she is a super supportive friend. Like I remember I opened for Rachel Feinstein when I was really new to comedy. Like I I think I probably had only been doing it like six months because the comedy club manager in Rochester gave me like a lot of opportunity. So I opened for her. So that was probably like six or seven years ago. So that was when Amy was first getting like really famous. And she was doing a show at the Auditorium Theater in Rochester. Amy was the same weekend that Rachel was headlining the comedy club and after her show she came to the late show to see Rachel and she sat in the back and you know everyone was like oh my god Amy Schumer she's so famous but she was just a very supportive friend to Rachel she definitely like you know, she I felt like she she did help bring up other really good comedians with her like you said like uh Mark Normand and um oh who Bridget Sam, Everett Sam, 
Sam Morell yeah. too. Sam Morell, yeah. And and those people are all very, very good, but it's just she was the one who happened to get the most attention. So I think if you can like get a lot of attention, get famous, and then share that fame with your friends and use it to like shine a light on your friends, that's very cool, you know, because a lot of people are really good at comedy and have been at the comedy cellar for like a long time and they still aren't really like famous, like household names, but they're so good. So if someone if a friend of theirs gets really famous and brings them up with them, that's awesome. I think that's great. Yeah. So I cheated because I, I've known you for a while, but like yeah. normally I ask people these questions. I'm like, you know, actually surprised the answer, but you got your start at, at a, a contest, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. In in Rochester. So you just went out. Was it a dare? Was it, did, were you the funny friend and, the, and your friends were like, hey, you should try out for this? I feel like I, when I was a teenager, I got really into Margaret Cho because my mom had like all these Margaret Cho DVDs. And I was like, oh shit. Like I didn't even know stand-up comedy was a thing really until then. And then I was like, oh cool. I want to be a comedian. And I had always done like theater and stuff. And I went to college for musical theater. So I was like, I really want to be a comedian. So I started thinking that when I was 19. But then I was like really scared. Now I would always pussy out. Like I was always going to sign up for open mics. And then I would pussy out. And then I moved back to Rochester. I was like 22, 23. And uh, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because I knew there was a comedy club in Rochester. But then I would get scared. And so then when I saw that there was a contest, I don't know what happened. I guess I was just like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I signed up for the contest. And then my husband, who's my boyfriend at the time, he was like, you probably should do an open mic or something before you just do a contest. And then I was like, yeah, (laughs) but then I never did. I never did an open mic or anything. I just like wrote down material and I was like, this is going to be good. And then I did the contest. So it was kind of like backwards way of doing things, I think. I talked to Justin Brown. He told me that he did that contest and then waited for somebody to call him to do an open mic again. Like he <laughs> he had no idea how that worked. So he yeah. did an open mic and then waited for them to say, hey, come back. You know, yeah. he just, and like I think six months went away and he's like, oh, maybe I should not wait for them anymore. Yeah, you kind you kind of have no sense at all when you first start. Like, and I remember I moved on in the contest, and then I immediately like entered another contest, and I started doing open mics, and I was just like off to a running start. But I didn't realize that like, okay, this is going to be really good for a while, and then you have to, and then you have to actually learn how to do comedy because your friends and family aren't just always going to come out to support you and stuff. Like, you need to actually learn. I don't think I was bad. I think I was pretty good at first, but I had to learn to like bomb and go through that too. Yeah. Do you have a worst show in mind? Like, do you, oh, do you have yeah. a, like a worst bomb? We were talking about that. Actually, I think that the first time that I ever bombed was when I opened for Rachel Feinstein. Like one of the shows was so bad. It was like, and I had been doing comedy for like six or seven months and I had never bombed because I had the, probably because I had this like big cushion of like, I was 23 and I had like a ton of friends in the area and everybody was just like first out of college. So nobody really had a lot to do. So they would always come to my shows. So I would always have like 20 to 30 people in the audience for me. So I could never bomb because like all my friends and family were yeah. there laughing. <laughs> but then when I started doing working club weekends hosting, I didn't always have people there for me. And it was the first time that I had to do shows where I had to appeal to people who weren't like my friends. And uh, that was actually pretty hard. And so one of the shows that I did for the Rachel Feinstein weekend, my parents came to it and I was like, and I only had to do, you know, hosts don't do a ton of time, probably only like 10 minutes. But I remember it was just like, 
10 minutes of silence like and it was in a really big comedy club so it was just like 200 people just sitting in silence and I was like oh my god this is the worst experience of my life and (laughs) my mom was like mad on my behalf she was like well those people are fucking idiots (laughs) (laughs) I was like no I now looking back I'm like it's probably just that I had only been doing stand-up for like six or seven months and like I probably wasn't that good that's probably what it was but it was very bad and then we like went out to dinner after and i i had to like lay my head on the table and be sad i remember because i was so depressed it was terrible it was really good for your mom though to go into attack mode right away (laughs) i know my mom would always be like that if i didn't like win contests or if people didn't like my set my mom would always be like well those people are stupid and like so she's pretty nice she's pretty supportive i think my mom would be like yeah we told you to go to grad school idiot. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think as the years went on and i still was like not really making any money doing comedy my mom was she was still really supportive but she was like so are you like you're sure that this is like what you want to do this is what you want to do with your life and i was like yeah it is and she's like okay like i just want to be sure that this is what you want because it seems like it's really hard and you know you're like broke all the time and i was like yeah but i love i have to do it i love it so <laughs> have you ever waned on that like uh you know have you ever thought oh maybe this isn't for me maybe i should do this part-time yeah um i think what was hard was i went through like a phase um in rochester where all these other rochester comedians who were really good had like moved to new york city and i saw them starting to get really successful and then i started to feel really shitty about myself because i was like well i've been doing comedy for three or four years and these people are like doing so much better than me but then i also was like really scared to move so i was just like well i'm gonna just keep living here but then be like mad that these people are doing better than me and eventually i was just like well if i really want to get these opportunities i have to go to new york or la like you can't get those opportunities in a small city so i knew that i had to I knew that I had to move. And then I felt like when I moved, I stopped being so jealous of people because I saw how people got opportunities. And and it wasn't like a confusing thing anymore. I was just like, this is how you do it. And then I felt more confident again. New York is obviously a big scene, but yeah. is it small too? Like, I mean, you must you must run into the same people because like like I was at a, a show in Pennsylvania, Scranton, and Lizzie Cassidy and Olivia Grace were on it. Yeah, so like, okay, I know both so, of them. Yeah, right. So like, I walked in there, and you know, we the bars closed now, but we we closed it down that night, and we were just talking about the people we knew, and like, I'm from Binghamton, and you know, obviously, we were talking about Stephen Rogers and Caitlin Palufo, and and you, and you know, it's like it just kind of weird that you know I shouldn't have any common interests with these people in New York City, but, but I know, you do. Like, I know all you those do. people. So do you run into the same people over and over? Like, does it feel like a small scene? Yeah. And I think what you just described is like the perfect way to describe it too, because even the whole state of New York, it's not even just New York City. It's like the whole state feels small, even though it's a huge state, because you're like, like, I will be like, oh, okay, I'm I'm good friends with like, you know, Samantha Ruddy or something. And then yeah. Sam, she started out in, she's from Scranton, but she started out in like Syracuse area. So she knows everybody upstate, but now she knows everybody in Brooklyn too. And now she's like been on Colbert and like, you know, you just know everybody. It's like you're friends with everybody. Right. And she's on full frontal. Like she's writing for them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, and it's amazing because you, 
the more you do comedy, the more that you get to know people who you started with them. And then all of a sudden they like are doing really well. And you're like, oh, wow, like this is a cool thing. Like now you have these connections and, you know, people who are TV writers and and you have, you know, you just you get a lot more opportunity. I think the more people that, you know, you know, and the more that you're friendly to people, too, because some people are assholes and then they never get any opportunity. <laughs> I, I don't I for the life of me, I will never understand why anybody really but a comedian trying to climb the ranks would ever be a dick to anybody like yeah because like like my dad and mom they're teachers and my dad always said the two people in the school you have to be nice to are the secretaries and the janitors because yeah. they could either save your ass or fuck you like, like <laughs> yeah you know like, like if you if you forget something at school and you need it on a saturday you're gonna call the principal no, exactly. you're going to call the janitor. Like, exactly. and, and they're probably the people some teachers might ignore or forget even exist. But like those guys are the lifeblood of that school. So yeah. like, I, like I always think like, not that promoters are the custodians of the secretaries, but like we talk like, you know, and, and I'm a comedian, I'm a host, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a promoter too. And it's like, well, if, if Madeline Smith is a dick to me and Phil Farda uh, says, hey, what do you know about Madeline? I'd say, well, I wouldn't wear there. Like, like, yeah, that, exactly. that word, and I, that is an actual conversation I've had. So, just so you know. so, <laughs> You're like, like <laughs> Phil was like, what do you think of Madeline? You're like, she's a huge fucking bitch. <laughs> but knowing Phil Farty, he'd be like, cool. All right. Yeah, and he would like, he'd like that. He'd like that. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, like, I don't, that reputation goes so far, so far and so fast. Like, I wouldn't want to be a dickhead to anybody. I 100% agree with you. And I think that, like, a good, a good example of that too um that i was just thinking about actually was so you know how sarah cooper has gotten like really famous recently yeah, she well, does almost overnight yeah exactly it feels like it's overnight because before it was like she was a she's a comic in new york she has been for a few years but just like kind of a normal comic in new york and then all of a sudden she's like wildly famous from these tiktok videos where she like you know does an not an impression of trump you know what it she does yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. yeah, she, yeah, yeah you it, know. it's like a a lip sync basically a lip sync exactly she's like lip syncing along to trump videos and it's very funny but like she got very famous and i was thinking about sarah cooper because i was like you know she was on a show with me actually a few months ago before all this started we did a show at west side comedy club and she was doing like five minutes on it and it was like i don't know if she had to bring people i'm not sure if she was like a bringer on it but she was obviously kind of like a little bit on the lower tier because she like came over to me and she was like we were talking she was like oh i'm only doing five minutes and then she was like you're doing 10 i gotta like get up to doing 10 and i was like oh wow. don't worry i was like it's only just because like i because i know this person or something like that and but i was really friendly to her because she's really nice and i like her but i was thinking like what if i had been like a dick to her if i was like oh yeah i'm doing 10 you're only doing five and now she's like super famous like a couple months later you know it's just well, like one of those things she just hosted kimmel last night I, isn't that crazy so, and like, just a couple like, months ago she was doing like a bringer show and not that i'm saying that that's because she's like shitty or anything like that she's very funny but it's just like it's just funny how things like that can change things like that can change really fast well i did a podcast with shafi hossein and have you run into uh -huh. him in the city Yes, I've seen him okay. a few times. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he just moved down there, I think, in November. So perfect time. Yeah. And, that sucks. And, but like, <laughs> he, I was surprised. He don't, I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. And he's from Bangladesh. He taught me how to say Bangladesh. So oh, I feel like uh, nice. I feel like I feel like I'm better than you right now. So 
Uh, <laughs> you are. He, you are. He, he taught me how to say that. And then, uh, but we were talking, and and I had him on my podcast, and you know, he's been in the city for a little bit. He had like this ri- uh, this this pretty big rise uh, from Albany. Like he just it, like kind of like a Sarah Cooper type, but like he just went. Like one night we had no idea who Shafi was. The next night he's in all these festivals. He's in on, he's on all these Albany shows. Like what yeah. the hell happened? Now he's in New York. Well, I had him on my podcast and then I'm like, okay, cool. And I, I put it out the next week and I don't know why I put it out. Oh, he made a, he made a joke about Kanye West being president. And I'm like, well, I can't hold this because I don't yeah. think Kanye is going to last to November. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. So like the, but the next week, uh, Joe List had him on his podcast. I'm like, no fucking way. Like, yeah. I had Shafi first. And you have no idea how quickly that's going to happen. Like, like, yeah, you know, so but Shafi is like, like, hey, anytime you come down here, let me know. And I'm like, everybody says that. But yeah. like, um, that has to like, like, I want to ask this, like, like, you knew so many people, I think, before you went there, did that make it easier for you to make the decision to go? Yeah, definitely. And and I was talking to um, Chris, who runs the Finger Lakes Comedy Festival. He's also my like college agent. He's super awesome. I love him. But I was talking to him a couple days ago. And he was like, you know, I run the Finger Lakes Comedy Festival, and I really don't make like any money off of it. He was like, I have to like, actually put my own money into it. And he was like, but I think it's a really good way to bridge together like a lot of comics from New York City and comics from upstate so that then when people want to move to New York City they know people and he was right because I did that festival for like three years in a row the last year I got to headline it which was cool and it was very like you know like I would just meet all these people and they would be like when you move to New York you can do my show and not everybody really meant it like some people you know not really but like in general most people really meant it so then by the time I got down there I already had all these friends and I could get booked on shows and I still had to do mics of course but I felt like I was already like kind of starting from a place of having like four years of four or five years of experience and then also um you know just knowing all these people and already getting booked on shows because I honestly think getting booked on shows is like only maybe 50% about how good of a comedian you are and the other 50% is like how many friends you have you know in the yeah. scene when you started doing comedy were you booked almost right away yeah I did get booked a lot and I feel like some people were like really shitty about it because like, they were like oh you've only been doing comedy for like a second now you're booked on all these shows but I think that like sometimes when you're new you kind of have this like people are like ooh who's this new person and then it kind of does lead to you getting booked a lot because if you're new and you're automatically pretty good I think that that leads to you getting booked a lot and I was already pretty good because I had already you know had a major a degree in uh, musical theater so I already knew about stage presence and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I got a comedian here. His, his name's Thomas Eggleston, and he's a very good writer. But the first thing I said to him when he got off stage the first time he was on, I said, "Have you done theater before?" And he said, "No." But he carried he carried himself in a way where I thought this guy probably shouldn't be doing comedy. He should be, you know, reading lines somebody had written or or writing a theater because he's yeah. he's very good writer. Uh, not not that he's a bad performer, but it's like he has this this air about him where it's like, oh, like you look like you could lead something like you. He should be performing somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out he didn't. But I, I would think that if you have a theater background, you know, maybe you're nervous because it's new material and it's all you. But performing it on stage shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know what you mean about like writing and performing being different, too, because like there and I 
this sounds like I'm throwing people under the bus and I like don't mean to, but there are some comics in New York who I knew about before I moved there because they're really famous on Twitter. You know, like they have these great Twitter accounts. They have a shit ton of followers. But then I would see them at like mics and shows and I was like, oh, they are not very good performers. Like their jokes are strong, but they can't perform. They're just like monotone or they're just standing there like lifeless. They can't do crowd work. And I mean... I sometimes I wish that I was a better writer, but I think that sometimes it's more about being able to connect with a in live stand up comedy. It's like connecting with the crowd and doing crowd work and being able to like think on your feet. I think that's like a good skill set to have, honestly. So I want to talk about the album eventually, uh, Bell of the yeah. Ball. So I got that. Yes, but but I, I we'll talk about that. But I do want to ask because uh, there's something on that album that is not there, and it's crowd work. Like oh yeah, like and, and like, like every show I've, I've seen you do. Yeah, is like at least half and half crowd work yeah. material. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how did you get? How did you get good at crowd work? Or I don't even know if "good" is the right word. How did you get confident enough to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, at first I never did it. And then I start, I don't even know, I think like six or seven months in because I started hosting at the comedy club a lot, I would start doing it because like you're kind of supposed to go out and be like, hey, like, does anyone have a birthday? Does anyone have like an anniversary? Like all that stupid stuff. So um, I think that that was when I started doing it. And then I think the reason that I got very confident and started doing it so much was because I found that like, I always had a lot of stuff I wanted to say to these like old shitty men that would always, you know, be like hitting on me in public or being rude to me in public. And I felt like on stage, it was the first time I got to really do that because I was like more powerful because I was like, okay, I have a microphone. Everyone's like listening to me. And so I can like make fun of these guys because sometimes like as a woman, you can't really do that in society or else you might get hurt or like something (laughs) scary might happen, you know? (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay, now I can actually do it. And that's, I started doing it a lot. And um, so I think that that was it. One of the first comedians from New York I saw, Teddy Smith. Do you know him? Oh, no, I don't think so. Teddy Smith, um, I'm going to guess he's a he's a black guy. Uh, he, so I could get the age wrong. I don't know. I've, I've heard some <laughs> things about how they, they do or do not crack. Yes. But, um, I'm going to say he's around 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dude killed doing all crowd work. And it was so impressive. And then the more people I saw coming up from New York, it seemed like they were all kind of geared toward crowd work. And, and it might have been uh, the producer liked that style. So that's what he brought. But is is Crowder more prevalent in New York than it is in Rochester? Yeah, I guess kind of because I think that, well, I think it depends on where you perform. I kind of feel like if you perform at the clubs in Manhattan, people do a ton of crowd work because most of the people in the audience are like tourists or people who have been barked in off the street. So you always be like, where are you from? What's this guy all about? Blah, blah, blah. But then I feel like if you're in the Brooklyn alternative scene, you're not really doing crowd work because it's mainly just like other liberal white people. So like everyone's like the same as you. I think that crowd work is a lot more fun to do when it's when you're doing it with people who are like different age ranges and not the same political mentality because if if I was just on stage like doing crowd work with like other women other young women who are like super liberal I feel like it wouldn't be very funny because I'd just be like yes we agree with each other at the end so it's like a lot more funny if I'm like roasting an old man or something like that so I think so, that's why <laughs> so it's better with tourists <laughs> so if, let's say let's say you're going up third yeah and do you spend the first 20 minutes like as a as an audience member or whatever looking around the the crowd and like okay well i'm gonna pick my target here do you take notes on on what you see around there 
Definitely. I feel, yeah, that's that's a good that's a good question. I feel like definitely. I always some comics like I'm sure you've seen a lot of comics like don't pay attention to the show until they go on and then they yeah. just leave like immediately after. Not so much in upstate, but like in New York everyone's like, "Oh, I got to do another spot." So they like leave. But I'm like I like to hang out and like see what's going on before I go up and then I like to see what's going on after too cuz I'm like then you get like a feel for the crowd and see how people are interacting and like if there's some Thing. You can like say something about the comedian who went before you. I just think it's good to like be aware of what's going on. Well, you know, I don't want to throw the guy under the bus. Uh, Phil yeah. Farda, uh, yeah. he he taught me a really big lesson and and to pay attention to everything because like I think he was a judge at, at a, a contest. Yeah, and I had won my preliminary, and then I came back and I think he went out to smoke during my set uh, on the next one. So he he's doing. Oh no, he was a headliner. Uh, so he was just there to watch and, and then he, but he performed at the end and he was doing chronic crowd work and he's like, uh, he had a joke about Taco Bell and the set I did to win was all about Taco Bell. So he referenced that set, uh, to me when he's on stage, he's like, Mike, you were talking about Taco Bell. And I go, that was my last set. Yeah. So, like, like, yeah. so he felt he apologized afterward and I, I felt bad for him because like honest mistake. I mean, a lot of people just do that set and come back with it. But I yeah. didn't. But I'm like, oh, I, I definitely that that'll teach me a lesson. Like never assume, you know, what's happening during the show. Like I got to watch. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think I think that's like a good thing to remember, because sometimes when I'm opening for people, I need to scale it back doing crowd work, because I feel like if you're like a feature and you do a bunch of crowd work, you're kind of like screwing over the headliner a little bit, because then if it's someone who does a lot of crowd work, because then they'll go on stage and they'll be like, oh, are you guys married? Are you guys married? And then people will be like, yeah, we already talked about this. We already went over this, you know, and then I'm like, oh, shit, this is why I like don't get booked as a feature as much because I'm like. <laughs> You know, and then I'm like, damn, I got to do more material and not just talk to people, you know? So, yeah. So, Bell of the Ball is yeah. obviously it's it's from a from a joke. Uh so yeah. uh it's it's I listened to it on Spotify, so Yay. uh it, it's streaming. What was the process like? I mean, it had to be stressful, but Seems like you packed the room, so I had yeah. to take some of the edge off. Yeah, I honestly, like, I feel like since I've been doing comedy for seven years, a lot of the time, I don't really think of myself as, like, being very successful because I'm like, I've been doing this for seven years. I'm not, like, really famous. I'm not, like, a household name or anything. But then sometimes there will be times where things like that happen, and I'm like, oh, actually, people do know about me, and people do like me, and I can actually you know, if I if I put the effort into marketing a show, I could actually get a lot of people. I think it depends on where I do the show. Um, but I'm hopeful, like with the album that now I'll get I'll be able once you can tour again, um, hopefully that I'll be able to get more people to come out to see me because I'll, I'll be like, oh, I have a wider audience. But um, I recorded it in Rochester and I had been living in New York City for like two, two and a half years at the time. I think that that kind of helps because then people in Rochester are like, "Ooh, you went to New York. You're like big time." Yeah. Like, which is not necessarily true, but um but yeah, they they promoted it pretty well in the paper and just like they had some ads for it and stuff and it ended up selling out, which was really cool. Like I didn't expect I expected that some people would be there, but I didn't expect it would be such a big crowd and I also didn't expect it would be such an enthusiastic crowd. Like they were so good and and it helped to make the album so good. I was like, wow, I'm so glad that the crowd is like so loud and laughing because how awkward would it be to have an album where like <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like it's very quiet crowd. It'd be horrible. And it, I was able to do it in like one take. So that was really good. That was awesome. Was it important to you to have it in Rochester? 
Yeah, because I was like, that's where I started doing comedy. And like, I know a lot of comics in New York who record their albums at comedy clubs there. But I'm like, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like New York, there's like a million comedy shows. And like, I probably could have gotten people to come see me there. But I was just like, I feel like in Rochester, there's not as much competition. And and I'm kind of like someone who moved away and and has some success. So I was like, so maybe that will make people want to come see me. And, um, and then my family could go to it and stuff too. So I figured I'd just do it there. This is just a question for me. Mm-hmm. Did you do that on November 30th? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Oh my yep. God. I, I don't know that. So, okay. Here, my brain is like, <laughs> my, like, I don't know if I have like, like I'm, I'm on the spectrum or something like that, but like <laughs> if it's a, if it's a number yeah. and a date, I can remember that. I don't know why. That's kind of, that's cool though. That's cool that you like know that, you know, yeah, that's I'm like, awesome. I'm like a, yeah, like the, the day I knew, I knew our show was August 12th, but like sometimes I'll get like the year confused. But yeah, yeah I, I think if I see it on a calendar, it's just there. Wow. So, You're that's really good though. And that probably helps you with like doing all your booking and stuff too. You yeah. have a good sense yep. of dates. Yeah. I've, I think, I don't think I've ever double booked a show, uh, partly for that reason. It's like, no, that I remember that for some, some reason I can't do, you know, April 14th. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome that you know that. That's really good. So you went to Fiona, right? Yeah. My sister went there. And oh, I don't know cool. if we ever talked about that. Yeah. She, uh, oh. she was a psychology major. So, wow. uh, I'm sure she did no musical theater. But she, <laughs> yeah. she was in the band because my parents are, are musicians. So we all had to do band stuff. Uh, oh, cool. were you, were your parents into like the arts? Yeah. Um, my mom is a librarian and my dad is an environmental scientist. So it wouldn't necessarily sound like that they would be super into theater, but they were like super, my mom's like super, super into theater. So she would like take me to see all the like touring shows with the Rochester Broadway Theater League and like all the like, um, local shows and stuff. So I actually saw like a ton of theater growing up. I just didn't really know about stand up until I was like a teenager. I feel like I didn't really know that stand up comedy was a thing at first. So when you tell your mom, hey, I'm going to move to New York, I'm sure she's happy. But yeah. I'm sure in her mind, she says, I'm going to go get to see Broadway shows more often now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, she liked that. But she was like, I think my parents were like very supportive. But also, I think that they were just like, okay, well, this is like a huge financial decision that you're making. Like, are you sure it's like a good decision? But they were very supportive of it. They were just kind of like, uh, this is really expensive. Like, why? Why are you doing this? <laughs> like, because <laughs> my mom was like, but you're doing, you know, you're doing so well in Rochester. And I was like, yeah, but Rochester is small. Like, I'm never going to be able to like become a TV writer or get on a late night show or anything like that if I like just stay in Rochester. So I felt is like that, had... is that your goal? You want to do writing? Yeah. Well, I actually have started doing it professionally, but only for like a couple months. Like I I was like trying to sell a script for like two years, but then only finally did it in like May. So but it was but yeah, but now I finally am doing it. So that's pretty cool. And it helps during the quarantine to have like a writing job because there's like nothing else to do and you can't do live comedy barely so I'm like I'm really glad that I have that now <laughs> you know Can you talk about that at all um yeah yeah I uh I wrote a treatment for a show which is like you know basically just um a synopsis of it and like an idea for what it's going to be and my friend I there was a woman who had seen me at the comedy cellar which was is like probably the best place to be seen in New York she'd seen me there like a year ago and then we followed each other on Instagram and she's a TV writer and also like very highly connected in the industry and she was like you're really funny I really like you I want to help you out and 
And she was like, if you have any scripts, like send them to me. So we have been back and forth for a while. And then in like March or April, she was like, hey, so I my production company is going to start putting money towards animation projects. And she was like, but because of COVID, we can only do animation. We can't do any live action stuff. So she was like, I don't know if you have any ideas for like an adult animation TV show or like a animated short or anything like that. And she was like, but if you do and you want to send them to me, I could try to get them looked at by our like board of directors. And so then I was like, I kind of have an idea for an adult animation. It's sort of like a dark comedy about a girl who's like friend passed away. And then she like goes into another dimension to see her friend. And I was like, this is kind of an insane idea, but I'll see what she (laughs) says. And then I sent it to her and she was like, oh my God, I love it. It's amazing. Like I have to show it to the board of directors and uh, this another executive producer. And so then they sent it around and then they, I didn't think that they were actually going to buy it. And then at the beginning of May, they were like, hey, we're going to, we really want to buy this, blah, 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 like the end. <laughs> and then they they bought it. And um, now I they're making a pilot out of it. And this Sunday, August 16th, is the due date of the final draft. I've already had to turn in like 10 different drafts that they look at. And then the script supervisor and the executive producers send me notes. And then I work on it again. But the Sunday is the due date. And then um, after the Sunday, then they'll start working on animation and the voice actors. And so then the pilot will be done. And then hopefully, if a network buys it, then it will go to series. So that's what's happening right now. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. It's very cool. It's very, very cool. And also like very surreal and weird. Like I signed the contract and I was like, wow, I'm a TV writer now. And it was it was very, very weird, but very now, cool. What, is this the same thing you've been working on for a couple of years? No, you know, actually, okay. the other thing I was working on was with a, a writer from The Daily Show. He and I met at doing a show at like Broadway Comedy Club or something. And he was like, oh, we should write something about like you. It's kind of about you being like polyamorous and like being like a wild lady in the city. And we did like pitch that around a little bit. But I feel like almost that now people are like, okay, we've seen enough stories about like girls in their 20s in the city. Like we're kind of like over it because I don't think anyone was really that interested in it. He's way more well connected than me. I mean, he's he's a writer. He wrote for The Daily Show for like 20 years. So he has way better connections than me. But I think that my story that I wrote was just more of like a relevant thing right now. And and they're only doing animation right now, really. So well, no, my my thought was that you had this thing you're working on for a couple of years and then you heard, well, they're only working on animation. So you changed it you're like, oh, no, yeah. I, I can definitely make this into a cartoon. <laughs> I think that our show could have been a cartoon for sure. But it's just like I was kind of like the woman that I'm working with and her production company, Moonscar, they're very into like stuff that's kind of like dark but still funny so I was like well maybe I should do something about like death and then I was like is that too depressing but I think as long as you incorporate comedic elements into it it's not too depressing it can still be funny you, you performed on zoom shows so this is keeping you busy yeah well I still now in New York like they're doing outdoor shows so I've done some of those and um, I've done like a ton of zoom shows and I've been able to book like a couple college orientation like zoom shows which is so weird to do but it's like you still like make money so that's good. But other than that, it's just like I went from doing so much stand up to not being able to do like anything. So I'm glad I am glad to have like a, a show to work on and a job and everything, because for a while I was just unemployed for like a month or two. And it was like a long time of just sitting around and doing nothing at all. Yeah, like you get used to it after a while, but you never feel yeah. good about it. Yeah. <laughs> like Now, wait, so what are you doing right now? Are you do you have a job right now? 
Or this are you is it. Chilling? Like this no, it? Like, yeah, yeah. So I I did this in a pretty. It's kind of a weird way. Like I got mm-hmm. let go of my job in like yeah. uh, October, so I I was able to and I was making good money. So I had a little bit saved, and then I I got on unemployment then. And right around then, I just started picking up venues for shows. Yeah. And I upped the production and I was doing like something like 12 or 13 shows a month. Yeah, uh, that's a lot. Just producing. And I had about 14 venues and some were regular, some weren't, you know, most of them were like monthly. And uh, so I was actually paying, you know, I had unemployment coming in, which is nice, uh, but I had, uh, I didn't need it. So I'm kind of like, hey, you know take money when I can. And then uh, I, was, I was pretty much paying all my bills with the comedy. Then COVID hit and there was like this mad rush to get everybody on unemployment. I was already there. So I'm like, okay, I don't need to worry about that. Then they they threw that six hundred dollars in. That was like, nice. Oh. And I didn't think I was gonna get that. And I probably shouldn't have, but I got it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So uh that's uh I think uh I'm out today unless I'll believe it when I see it. So my extension should have been done today. They extended it again. So yeah. hopefully it works again. Uh, otherwise, I'm actually going to have to uh, get a job again, which I is going to suck. <laughs> I but. know. I know. Well, my husband, like he he was getting unemployment plus the six hundred dollars um, for a while. And I was like, damn, this is like pretty dope. Like this is like yeah. more money than you were making before. <laughs> like just stay on this. But I, of course, you know, Republicans will be like, well, that's why no one wants to go back to work because they're getting the extra six hundred dollars. So <laughs> I but like, you know. And I and I I agree with that, but we also it's our money. Like we yeah. we've been hey, paying into this. Seriously. Like I, some of us have been employed since we were eighteen or sixteen or whatever. Yes, like it and is not, our money. and not have we've never been unemployed. We've never never tried to get the benefits. Like we're getting that money back. Like oh like, yeah, you know. And so I I just don't think people understand that part. I totally agree. And that's kind of my issue when people kind of like specifically conservatives, but when people are like, oh, they don't want to go back to work, they're getting this money. It's like you said, like when I was working as an independent contractor, as a comedian and doing a nanny job and stuff, I had to pay the IRS like $3,000 in taxes. And I was like, okay, so I just paid you $3,000. So yeah, I should get a lot in unemployment. I think that that is fair. I've paid a lot to the IRS over the years and I've paid a lot into unemployment. I've paid a lot into social security. And, you know, I mean, it's like, I think that's reasonable that taxpayers should get the benefits of paying their taxes. Like, I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. I think you get back almost like 40%, you know, week to week. So it's like, what do you, give me this. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, you already have all my money. Give me some back. Yeah. Like it, it, it was mine yeah. first. Stop taking it. And dude, also like, I mean, of course, I don't mean to just make this like all about my political opinions, but like, honestly, if you were making way less money than you're making now, like on unemployment and getting that extra $600 a week, then that's an issue with society. That's an issue with the country. That's like you not getting paid enough money. That's not an issue of people being like, oh, it's unfair. Why are these unemployed people making so much money? And I have to like slave away at Amazon or something. It's like, that's because Jeff Bezos is an asshole and he's the richest man in the world and he's taking advantage of the workers not because it's not the fault of people getting unemployment like you know the working class they need to stand together (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and, you know, it, the, the richer people know all the loopholes they can afford yes. to not pay taxes. And like, you know, so we're picking up that tab too. 
Yeah, dude, like uh, all these billionaires like don't even pay that much in taxes, whereas people who are like working as freelancers, you have to pay a shit ton of money in taxes. If you even if you're only making like $30,000 a year, you have to pay a huge portion of that in taxes. So like I think it's fucked up. I think it's a bad system. Well, I mean, and, and I know you've gone through it because every comedian has, but like yeah. our cars will fall apart eventually because we're, we're on this gig economy where it's like, no, I have to drive two hours to Utica to yeah. do a show. I mean, I won a contest in Utica and yeah. on the way there, my car's engine blew up. Mm. Oh I, I, I forgot I, that, that happened to you. Yeah, I won the roast battle. So my prize was a 72 ounce steak and a new engine. Like, oh like I had to buy, like I got a bill and a steak and I don't even eat yeah. steak. Yeah. So it's, still in, it's still in my freezer. It's been there for a year, but like, uh, you know, it's like yeah. we don't make a whole lot of money and you know, everything we own deteriorates because we're trying to make ends meet. Yeah. Well, even comedians that you think of as like making it or being very successful, a lot of them make a lot of their money either from, yes, they make money from touring, but a lot of them also have a job as a writer on a TV show or like Sam Reddy, like we were saying, she's a digital producer on Full Frontal. It's like, it is very, very hard to make ends meet as a comedian, unless you like book a ton of college gigs because those are well paid. But other than that, like most shows are not that well paid. And if you're like a feature at a comedy club, you might get like $500 for the weekend. That's really not very much. <laughs> like it's no. not enough to pay your rent, honestly. Like if you live in New York City, like that's, there's like no way. And when the coronavirus, like the lockdown started happening, that it kind of put everything in perspective for me because, you know, comedians I really like, uh, Mark Norman, Joe List, like those guys, uh, Sam Morell, like, like they're all, people are Venmoing them money. Because it's yeah. like, like all their gigs are gone. And, and, you know, I don't know if they need the money as badly as I do. I'm sure they don't. But like, yeah, it's almost nice to see they need help, too. Yeah. You know, in, in a weird yeah. way, it's like, oh, it does affect all of us. Also, it's like, ah, shit, if they're in trouble, I'm fucked. Like, yeah, <laughs> like they're they're two of the best comedians in New York City. And that's yeah. the level I aspire to be. And I'm still not going to be able to feed myself. So, oh, I don't yeah, know, yeah. Know? No, I, t you know, honestly, for me, for April, I was just like, I'm so fucked. Like, I have no way of making money. I was like, I there's like nothing I can do. And then thankfully, two things happened. Like, I thankfully got like a 10 weeks of eventually I got like 10 weeks of back pay of the unemployment, yeah. which was amazing. And then I also sold the script. So because of those two things, I was like, oh, I finally have money. I'm okay. But I mean, yeah, after all your gigs are canceled, and that was kind of like a big part of your income, or like for some people, all of their income, you're kind of screwed because... It's like, what are you supposed to do? And you can't. And claiming unemployment as an independent contractor, now they're letting you do it because of the pandemic. But normally you couldn't even do that, you know? No, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. And, and you know, yeah. I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but like I've never had to claim. I mean, this would have been the first year where I've, I've been able to claim taxes uh, or, yeah. you know, as a comedian. And yeah. uh, so, like, I don't think I'm going to get there now, obviously. But, like, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know how I was going to do that. And, you know, maybe now I don't need to worry about it. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's I, I, it was just tough. So, like, yeah. to, to have all that money, like, if, if they didn't if if we didn't have that unemployment, that assistance, who the hell knows where it'd be? You know, oh that's God. why that's why, like, yeah, like I understand being like fiscally responsible and, and covering all that money for a rainy day or whatever. But it's like it's raining. It's fucking pouring. 
So we kind of need it. Yeah, we need it right now. Like, give it to us right now. I agree. (laughs) I think I think now is the time. And like, and honestly, like, I think that they should have kept the $600 a week going just to the end of the year, because it kind of scares me now that they cut that off, because that means a bunch of people are going to go back to work. And I honestly don't think that a lot of people should be going back to work, because then it's just going to be more people out and about and the virus just spiking again. And then we're all screwed again, you know? Well, I think it's the same thing that that bothers me with everything and everybody. Uh, I I think there's very little forethought. And it's like, okay, well, you're not thinking a step ahead. Like, oh, people should get back to work. Okay, but what happens when they do? You get spiked and then the economy shuts down again. It's like, wouldn't wouldn't it be more financially responsible to put in a lot of money right now so that later... We can have all that money to spend when the economy opens up in full. Like Americans and people at large are fucking stupid and impulsive. We're going to spend all the money we get. It's going (laughs) to go back to you. Just be patient. So it's like, like, and it's probably better if more people are alive to spend the money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a dark take, but it's true. I feel like we as a country have just handled this so badly. And it's frustrating because then you see other countries and you're like, wow, yeah, they did have to be shut down for three months and that sucks. But now they're all able to like go out and live their lives again. But because we're so unwilling to ever just like do things for other people. You know, I think you just see so many Americans are just like, well, I don't care. I don't give a shit if like your grandma dies or whatever. I just want to go to the beach. I want to be able to do whatever I want. It's like, I get it. It's summer. I want to go to the beach too. But like, if you go to a beach and it's super crowded, maybe you should go home. Like maybe you should (laughs) just like use your better judgment. Like, I I just feel like people are so selfish. They're like, I don't want to wear a mask. It's like, yeah, nobody wants to. It's not like fun, but it's like, but that's what you have to do in public so that you don't get people sick. Just you know, think about other people, be compassionate for once. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't work here. Yeah, it's not an American thing. Like, I feel like in other countries, people like kind of have more of a sense of community. And I feel like in America, people are very into like one for all all for like they're very like I'm just about it's it's like it's like it's all about me I'm the one that's important and it's not it's not like a mentality of like you know thinking of your brothers and sisters your neighbors it's very much just thinking about yourself I think yeah I look back and like you know I've had I love George Carlin and so his clips come up and it's like you know he I I miss him I wish he was around to do what he would, I think he would kill himself, honestly. I think, I think like he would, like, I always think Lewis Black is going to have an aneurysm and a heart attack on stage. I think, I think George Carlin would have the same thing right now, but like all, all of his bits, like you could do them today and they fit pretty well. I think loving those comedians like has helped help keep me sane a little bit. It's like, okay, well, I can remember what George Carlin said. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's prophetic. And it's like, I get it. And like, there's it, there's more value. And I'm hoping that people see like they share a George Carlin clip or, or Sarah, Sarah Silverman clip. It's like, oh, yeah, remember those comedians? They're, they're people you like. They're people you should be supporting later. You know, do you think that's going to happen? Like, do you think when when we're allowed to go back on stage, like people are going to support comedy at large? I hope so. I mean, I feel like we we were talking about this a little bit before. Like, I feel like people are very nervous to go out and about, which they should be. I understand that. But I also feel like people are very desperate to be out. So, like, I've noticed a lot of people coming to these outdoor shows in New York City because I think that just after having been inside for so long and being in New York City in April where it was, like, so scary and depressing, I think now people want to go see comedy and really want to go outside and do something. So, so I think that maybe comedy will actually be even more popular when we're allowed to do shows again. That's my hope. 
Did you open for Maria Banford? No, Kelsey Claire did. I was very oh, okay, jealous. Okay. I was okay. very jealous. <laughs> but um, but I, but she but she deserved it. She beat us all out. You know, Maria had a thing on Twitter where she was like, "Hey, local comedians, blah blah blah. You guys, uh, local female comics. I'm doing a show in Ithaca. If you guys want to send me your tapes, uh, I'll pick somebody." And I remember it was like a very intense competition. But we were all like, "Oh, made the best person win." But I could tell everyone was like, "I want to fucking." Yeah. <laughs> and Kelsey Claire got it. And I couldn't really have hard feelings. I was like, no, it's okay. She deserved it. So she opened for her in Ithaca and she said it was very cool. So it was a cool experience. I don't know how many people do that, but like, I think Maria does that at every show or yeah. she used to or whatever. But I, I think that's incredible. Have you seen anybody else do something like that? Actually, I feel like that's mainly a Maria Bamford thing, like where, where she likes call does a call out for local comics local female comics yeah i don't i don't really see people doing that very much at all i think that's just her was she one of your favorites yeah she's amazing i love her i love her so much i i um i really like her i really like tignataro i really like mike berbiglia i used to really like margaret cho like i said but that was when i was like a teenager i'm not so into her anymore but i used to like her a lot uh so yeah i maria is definitely like near the top of the list i think I remember Mar- uh, Margaret Cho, uh, this would have been, the special probably came out in 90 or 91 or something like that. Yeah. She was wearing like black leather. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, do you remember the special at least? I know what you mean. Yeah, because okay. my mom has it like on DVD. Yeah, and, and she yeah. was great. I think she got a TV show. Like like back then, like like in the 90s and 80s, if you, if you had like a good half hour, you got a TV show. I know, so, like, dude. I wish that was like still a thing, right? That would be yeah, cool. Yeah, because like, like she got one, Roseanne got one, uh, yeah. uh, Seinfeld, I think had a show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, Ray Romano, Drew Carey, Tim Allen, like they all had shows. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And yeah. uh, I don't remember her show. I know her mom, you know, the character of her mom was in it. Yeah, yeah. I think her show was called All American Girl. And okay. the only reason I know is because I was really into her when I was a teenager. So I had like all the DVDs of that show. And it was actually a very funny show. It's too bad. It was like the first time there was an Asian American family, I think, on primetime TV. And then they canceled it after like a year or two. There probably has only been one other one, right? Didn't. Uh, Honestly, yeah. I don't think there's yeah. been a lot. Um, Ken Jong has one or had oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. and then Dr. Ken, maybe. And then uh, Fresh Off the Boat. Fresh is that off another the one? boat. Yeah, fresh off the boat. And then Dr. Ken, I truly can't think of any others. There's probably only been like three in all eternity. We might be wrong, but I just honestly can't think of like any others. Well, TV's only been around a hundred plus years. <laughs> yeah. So. I know, right? I know. Well, that's something that I've been talking about with the executive producer on the show that I've been working on. She was like, I really want to make a show that has like non-binary characters. Cause one of the characters in my show is non-binary. And she was like, I think it's really important to have this because there's like not on TV at all. Like they don't really have a lot of queer representation. Sometimes like you'll see, oh, there's a lot of gay characters on shows or something, but they're like in general often portrayed in like a stereotypical way or it's very like one dimensional. And she was like, it would be really cool if we had some non-binary, if we had some queer people, if we had some like trans people, because that's not on TV very often. You know, now that show Pose on Netflix has a ton of trans actors, which is so cool. But up until then, that was not really a thing. You didn't see a lot of that. No, I, I know Orange is the New Black. Had yeah. One, I, think, I think it was just one trans actor. 
Yeah, Laverne, Laverne yeah. Cox. She's awesome. But yeah, they not a lot. Not it's not really a thing. It, or it's only become a thing within kind of like recent history, I think. This is kind of a personal beef with with not it's not a beef, I guess. Uh I I'm an older guy. I'm yeah. 37 years old. It's like uh when non-binary and like all the pronoun stuff came out, like like I I always am afraid that I'm going to come off very ignorant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even just talking to you like last time I'm like don't get into it. You're going to come off like an asshole. <laughs> no, but, I don't think you're so like, nice, Mike. I can't imagine you ever coming off like an asshole like ever. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll play back the tape. Well, I, I'm sure I have, sure I have something. But, yeah. but I remember, um, well, it was I went to uh, with, with my ex. Uh, we went to like one. I guess it was like a I don't I don't know what they call it. It was like a movie night. But like, okay. I don't know if it was like a polyamory group night or whatever it was. Mm, but yeah, th- they went around and introduced because I guess like people come in and out of there all the time. And and I went once. So, I mean, that case in point, I went once. And yeah, uh, but they went around, and introduced each other. And and, uh, you know, I, I go by, you know, my my name's Mike. Uh, and then they list the pronouns. And to me, like, I'm like, is it necessary? But like, I'm not yeah. of that mindset. Like, like, it doesn't affect me. Like, so somebody, I think somebody was non-binary there. Yeah. And the thing that will never make complete sense, I don't think, is the pronoun they. Yeah. Because I, I always like, I, I come up from like a, like a writing field and I'm like, no, that's plural. Like I, there's part like this lizard part of my brain says, nope, it can only be this one way. I know my ex was not very... I I probably made a joke or whatever or, or said that that line and she was like oh that's that's just intolerant I'm like I don't think so I I said I'm just explaining you know why it takes me a little bit longer to get used to it because it's because yeah. it, like for me like like what I appreciate most out of like it's just the tolerance like like oh they they can see oh he's trying to learn like let's not shut him out he could be an ally let's not make him an enemy yeah, yeah. no I actually it's. I don't think that you're an asshole at all for saying that. I think that's like honestly a very good point because my my really, really close friend growing up was non-binary, but they didn't come out until a couple of years ago. And so they were like, when they first went to college, they were sleeping with this person and they were like, oh, this person goes by they, them and there. And this was like back in like, 2008 or whatever like I was like 18 and I had no sense I was like this doesn't make any sense yeah when we you know when we talk about them I was like when when you're talking about her to me because it is a, like a, a person who looks kind of feminine I was like when you talk about her to me just say her she's not here who cares and my friend was like no that's actually like really disrespectful it doesn't matter if the person's here that's what they want to be called so we just have to do it and I was like oh what a pain in the ass it's so annoying but then you know what honestly like over time, I learned to do it. And then my friends, when they were like 24, 25, came out to us as non-binary and was like, if you can manage to call me by they, them and there, I would really like it. If you can't do that, then you can call me he or him because that's like might be easier. And they were like, but I'd really like if you could try. And I was like, okay, this person is my has been my best friend for like 20 years. We grew up together and I don't want to be an asshole who's like, you know what, this doesn't make sense. So I'm just not even going to try. And then after I was doing it for like a six months, maybe a year, it became really easy. But it was really hard at first because you're right. It doesn't grammatically make sense. It sounds like you're talking about a group of people. But I think if it's important to some one, then you just like learn to do it because you want to be respectful. Well, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not the same thing, obviously, but like, I don't yeah. like being called Michael. So yeah. like, if, so if somebody says, 
I'm going to call you Michael. It's like, well, I don't like that. And they keep calling me Michael. I think they're an asshole. Exactly. Like, you know, it's like, like that. so like my, my whole thing is like, if I, I just want people to know that I'm trying or, or whatever, like, like see the effort, like I want partial credit, I guess. <laughs> like, Yeah, no, honestly, you say it's not the same, but I think it is exactly the same. I think it's like, cause I feel the same way. I'm like, I like to be called by full name. And sometimes people like give me a nickname and I'm like, that's fine, whatever. But I already told you what my name is. So why are you like, like changing it or why why are you refusing to call me what I told you my name is I actually think that's very similar to being non-binary because it's like if someone tells you that they go by they them pronouns then you should try to use that because that's what they told you that they liked you know just just be a nice person you know just it's the same as like you said like if you were like hey my name is Mike and then someone keeps being like okay Michael you're like that's not what my name is I like literally don't want to be called that like just call me call me by my chosen the name like it's rude so so i get that i i i get where people are coming from and i think like yeah it is kind of hard to learn but you know you just got to learn it and it's going to become so much more common too yeah. you know yeah it's and like and thing. and i i say like like i live in this this complete vacuum i had a buddy make fun of me because uh remember when kate middleton uh, kate middleton was she is she the princess or oh yeah yeah okay okay i think her, so yeah her sister hippa uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So or whatever uh, it, the royal wedding was happening, I was working on a newspaper and I legitimately had no idea who I knew who got married at the time, but I didn't know any of the family. And yeah. they're talking about it like like they were friends. And I'm like, who is this person? And he's like, I can't believe you don't know that. And then they started talking about Chris Brown. And I'm like, who is Chris Brown? And my buddy's like, he's like, Mike, I love you. Because if it's about Saved by the Bell and Full House, you know everything. But <laughs> if it happened like after 2005 in pop culture, you're clueless. And like, yeah. that's where I live. I'm like, no, I, I like what I like and I'm done. So maybe it was really prevalent in 2008, but I just yeah. had no idea. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that makes sense. It's like one of those things where it's just like, it, it slowly will become more of the culture. And to be honest, I think the older you are, the harder it will be to transition into it. Like, I think that now I see people who are like, teenagers or like pe- my brother's 21 and they're so good at respecting people's pronouns and they're so good at that but it's like also because they've like grown up with it so much more and they know kids from their high schools who are like I want to be called this and like they're so much more tolerant it's harder for us to do that because we didn't grow up with it and then I think people like my grandma's age they're just like probably never gonna be able to do it you know <laughs> like they're now my grandma still always calls my friend she and not to be like a downer but like my friend is dead and my grandma still calls them she and I'm like hey you know what they've been dead for like a year do you think you could just like try to get it right like you know could you like maybe respect this dead person like but my grandma still fucks it up but she doesn't you know my grandma doesn't mean anything by it she doesn't mean to be mean but she just can't like wrap her head around it she doesn't like get it so well my grandpa uh you know he's been dead for a couple years so we can talk all the shit we want about him (laughs) yeah but he, until he died, he he's a colored people. And yeah, like, yeah. like, obviously that's not right. But like at a certain point, like, like you just kind of like, he, you know, he's 93. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Like yeah. he's made it this far without committing a hate crime. I say we give him this one and let's go. Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know how you change people like that. I, I, I think that you're right. I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, I would like if my grandma could be more respectful. I'd like if she could learn those things. But I'm also like, she's 83. I think people, once they get to be in their 80s, they are not always going to learn things. However, that is no excuse for blatant racism or something right. like that. But if yeah, it's you don't, just like, you don't get a hall you know, pass. 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not one of those people who's like, well, my grandma said something horribly racist, so I just let it slide. Like, no, that's horrible. But I think if it's something like I think with they and them and that kind of thing, like I think that that's so confusing sometimes to my grandma's brain and she's already like kind of confused about things, so I'm just like, maybe I'll just like let this slide even though it is annoying cuz she's not trying to be hateful, she just has trouble like understanding the grammar of it. So it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> it's not the biggest deal. Yeah. So yeah. what's your goal in comedy? Like, uh, do, do you want to just be the writer or a performer or kind of do everything? I definitely really want to do both. I, I, I really want to get this show. I really want it to go to series. I already know for sure that the pilot's getting made. So that's amazing. But I really want it to go to series. And then I really want, like, when live comedy starts up again, I really, really just want to do as much comedy as possible. I'd really like to tour. Um, I'd like to eventually become, like, a touring headliner. That takes, like, a long-ass time. But that is my, like, goal. So I think I can do all those things if, like, you know... If I just keep at it, I think I can do those things. <laughs> Does the the pilot have a name? The series have a name? Yes, <laughs> it's called "My Friend Is Dead." It's very, <laughs> it's very depressing. <laughs> As I mentioned in real life, my friend is also dead. So I, <laughs> I kind of just wrote a show about that, about that experience. <laughs> That's gonna be fun to say. Hey, uh, I'm gonna go home and watch. My friend is dead. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wrote it as a placeholder on the pilot. And then the executive producer was like, oh, my God, that's such a funny, great title. And we're going to try to pitch it to like Adult Swim. That's like perfect. And I was like, oh, I just wrote it as a placeholder. Like we can do something else. And she was like, no, no, let's keep that title. That title's great. So now that's the title of the show. It's My Friend is Dead by Madeline Smith. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but that's funny. I mean, you pitch it as a dark comedy. Like, yeah. That's yeah. a perfect title. Yeah. And also, I feel like, you know, sometimes you have an experience that's like really crazy and you're like, you know, this was really horrible for me, but a lot of other people have experienced this, too. So I kind of wanted to make a show that I was like, maybe this will be comforting to people. You know, maybe that maybe a lot of people have experienced someone that they love dying, especially when it's a young person. It's really hard. So I was like, maybe people will find this show funny and it will like comfort them, too. That is my goal. That's what I hope. That sounds great. I mean, I I, uh, I had a friend die of cancer. I think he was 29. So oh, like, yeah, yeah. like, I'm sure, you know, maybe not everybody has that exact experience, but like, it's relatable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, fr- my friend was 28 when they died. And it, it is. It's like, it's this really weird thing. And I'm sure you experience this too, where people just want to say all this like dumb shit to you. Like they're like, oh, you know, now she's in heaven and, you know, now they're at peace and all that. And you're like, this is stupid. Like, what are you talking about? No, they were just in the prime of their life. They're not at peace. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, and people are just trying to be comforting, but people just, and then you're, you and I are both not religious. So like all that heaven shit, that doesn't make me feel better. You know, I don't believe in that. So it's just like, it's so frustrating because you're like, I'm really upset and people won't be honest with you about the experience. Like they just try to be like, oh, but they're looking down on you. And you're like, maybe they're not. I don't know. You know, just let me be upset <laughs> yeah like maybe they're still working on their game of words with friends with somebody like yeah like it's like oh like i watched her for 10 minutes i'm she's not doing anything i'll do something else <laughs> yeah exactly dude and it's like if i'm not religious then i don't really want to hear all this like dumb religious as much as people mean it to be nice i don't really want to hear all this stupid religious stuff like about the person being in heaven or at peace or all that it's like okay i don't I don't believe in that. So it's not really making me feel better. It doesn't really hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Good effort, though. Good job. 
Yeah, I was like, thanks a lot. So I was trying to make a show kind of about that, about how like frustrating it is when when you're a young person and your friend dies and everybody like just says all this dumb shit to you. And because I was like, that has to be relatable to people. I'm oh, yeah, sure. definitely. Right. Like other people have experienced that. Right. Like I feel like absolutely. Like, yeah. Does uh, that what happen when your friend died? Did you get a lot of like dumb Were people saying a lot of dumb shit about your friend? No, no, because like it, it was kind of a weird situation because my ex-girlfriend, her step cousin was his wife. So like I, I, he was like a friend in law. I don't think he had a whole lot of friends like I was in his wedding party, which I, sh- I felt like I was level jumping. Like mm-hmm. uh, my ex-girlfriend was in the wedding party. We we weren't even dating at that time. And uh, I, w- I got the invite. So I'm like, all right, I did a eulogy. And uh, I think I did it in part because his other friends didn't want to speak in public. So, oh, okay. so it, like, I feel bad. Cause like, it didn't hit me all that hard. Like, it, you know, he had cancer. We knew he had cancer. We knew he didn't have a lot of time. So like, you know, it hurt, but it wasn't like he was a childhood friend. So it was, it was kind of weird. Uh, and the only, I had one connection between me and him and it was his wife. So like, you know, I, we had no mutual friends really. Uh, my ex-girlfriend and I weren't speaking. So it's like, you know, no animosity. We just, you know, she was married and you know, whatever. Yeah. So, uh, no, it was so I kind of like I guess I escaped that awkwardness. Yeah. But yeah, but when it happened, like, you know, it wasn't a good feeling. Yeah, you know, and like, <laughs> no, you know, it's not. <laughs> it's certainly not. It's certainly not a good feeling. And then it's also like, I think it's just hard too, because then like you have to go to the funeral and stuff and you have yeah. to like listen to all that. You know, I don't know if if it was like a religious funeral, but like no. there's always. Oh, that's good. Yeah. My friends wasn't really either, but I feel like there was like an aspect of like, you know, spirituality about it and just stuff that is like it is comforting. But like if you don't really believe in that stuff, it's not really that comforting you know no i focused more on what i was going to say than you know like i missed the guy and he was a good dude but yeah i think if i had grown up with him that would have been different but i was like a i don't know i was like a like I said, I was level jumping. Like I just, you know, yeah. I, I was taking a spot of somebody else. Yeah. Well, isn't it, isn't it like weird when somebody dies too, who's like, who's not like, I thought like Gordy is a good example of that. Someone who like we both knew and yeah. we were friendly with, but we weren't like really close friends with her. We only knew him through comedy, but I just felt like when he died, I was like, this is so weird because I just kept thinking like, he just messaged me and now he's yep. dead and he just messaged me, you know? And it's just like this, weird feeling where you're just like oh wow people can die at truly any second and it's just a a weird thing you know yeah i mean like they were working on the boho uh he and i like i did my dad and i did the drywalling like because he he fucked up the drywall for the boho like the sign so we went in there and like and and george is like hey man you guys can have free tickets for life or whatever i'm like all right that's fine and uh paul kozowski and i we worked out um lineups for his showcase and then like my mom and sister played in a, a an ensemble with jordy uh, and his parents were doing it. so like oh, Jordy wow. didn't show up for practice. And uh, my sister said, hey, uh, Jordy died. And I'm like, oh, so like I started the phone tree to the yeah. comedians. I'm like, oh, no, what's going to happen? So, yeah. But like so on Saturday, we were talking at the club on Sunday. We didn't know if the club was going to happen. So it was, it was wow. just a weird, really weird situation. That is so it's so yeah. weird. It's so and he was somebody who like like all comedians knew. I feel like most comedians really liked him. Like he just he was just like a super nice, friendly dude. And I and it was so bizarre because I was just like, 
I don't know. For some reason, there's this weird feeling where like if you are talking to someone, they have like a permanence to you. So you're like, okay, so they'll be here forever. I just messaged him and he asked me to come do this. And then I will I'll follow up with him in a day. And then literally it was like he was dead. It's just like so random. Yeah, he was 27. God, that's so you know, young. I, I think he was really twenty. He might have been twenty eight, but but he was he around was there, young. and yeah, and, and it's, the whole the whole thing was sad, and you know, uh, you know, it's tragic, but yeah, kind of life. It really is, and I think as horrible as stuff like that is, when you do have something like that happen to you, especially if it's like a friend or or somebody that you were kind of close with, it does make you think like, wow, this is. You know, people always say like life is short and you, you know, you never tomorrow isn't guaranteed, but you don't really like think about it until you until you have that experience. And then I think the one pro there's nothing really good about it. But the one like good takeaway is that then you do like appreciate things a lot more and you start to try to be more present in when you're among your friends or be more present in the moment because you're like, but my friends could die (laughs) or I could die. And then you're like, kind of, I mean, you can't always be present. Like that would be ridiculous, but you try to be a lot more like appreciative of people and of your life and not take it for granted. So that's like the only good thing about that whole experience. The whole rest of it was bad, but well, <laughs> that was good. You did, you did get a pilot out of it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was talking to my girlfriend. I was like, I feel so bad that I'm like making money off of this. And she was like, you shouldn't feel bad about it though. She was like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like you're exploiting it. Like you're, you had an idea for a show and she was like, I don't think it's like a bad thing, but sometimes I will feel a little bit bad about it. I'm like, I feel like I'm making money because yeah, of my friend being dead. It, it's <laughs> not know? like you, it's not like you killed your friend and no. then made the show you know like <laughs> well you, and then you, also <laughs> if i really think about it also too i'm like you know it's very cool to have a pilot but i would rather have my friends than have a right. show so, right. so yeah so i don't feel too bad i just sometimes feel a little bit bad but i don't feel too bad <laughs> Well, I appreciate you doing this. I, I got to get going. I got to go. Uh, my grandma's got a birthday party, so I got to go. Oh, of <laughs> course. Also, also, I'm sorry. I realize it's getting kind of late. I realize we talked for a long time. Oh, so that's thanks, fine. Thanks for talking with me. No, I had a lot of fun. Uh, how can people follow along with what you're doing? And what do you want to plug? I know you got an album. Yeah, my album, um, it, it was doing really well. It was number one on the iTunes charts, which was amazing. But now, you know, that's fallen off. <laughs> it only stayed like that for a few days. <laughs> now people are like, but if you want to listen to my album, you can you can still buy it, but honestly, I know it's easier to stream it. So if you want to stream it, it's on iTunes, it's on uh, Amazon Music, um, it's on Spotify, as you mentioned. It's truly everywhere. And um, my name is Madeline Smith, M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N. So you can find me on all the social media and my website. And if you want to buy my album or or stream it or leave a review of it, that would be awesome. I would appreciate it. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm actually very glad that we got to talk. I feel like a podcast is like honestly a good excuse to talk to a friend, you know? Yeah, we should uh, <laughs> have, we should have more pandemics. I know, <laughs> I know, right? Well, and also I, I I have to come to Binghamton and see you. I we we should actually like maybe hang out in real life now that people are allowed to hang out a little bit more. Maybe we should actually hang out, do a show or a mic or something. Yeah, well, anytime you're in town, you can you can sleep at my house and I won't tuck you in. But you know, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> I liked when your girlfriend did it, but it's okay. It's fine. It's fine fine that you guys are broken up. It's fine. (laughs) Trust me. It's fine. It's better now. It's for the best. Yeah. It sure is.
<laughs> All right, I'll talk to you in a bit. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye. Stacked, I'm peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I, I hope they let me in.